Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 50, Goodbye to Mom. Last time, we talked about the beginning of the First World War and how that essentially severed the church in Central and Eastern Europe from the rest of the world, at least at times. Meanwhile, General Conference President Arthur G. Daniels went on a dangerous tour of the Pacific, and in one instance, he slipped past a German warship that would have sunk him on sight if they would have seen him. So good times, good times. Now, before we jump into this episode, I have some news. You may have seen it on Facebook, but I wanted to update you here on the future of this podcast. Now, when I started out, this was just a hobby. I didn't want to go past Ellen White's death, which means this is the last episode. Except I've decided to keep going. I don't know how far, but we are going to keep going. Not only are we going to keep going, but we're going to begin putting the episodes on YouTube, which I know some of you have asked for. It's easier for some people to listen to them that way. Now, it's going to take a little bit of time to retool and gear up to cover more of the 20th century. I need more books, and I need time to shift my research habits. There's a lot more material to study in the 20th century. So, our next episode, the one that's coming next month, is going to be a special episode where I answer listener questions. So send in your questions on Facebook or email them to avenushistory at gmail.com. Now, there are a lot more changes coming that I can't talk about yet, but one I can talk about is the launch of our Patreon page. Patreon is a website that enables people to support podcasts like this one. You can give anywhere from a dollar to a hundred dollars a month, and the more you give, the more cool things you'll get as a thank you. Like your own custom-designed plate specifically for eating haystacks. Or an annotated version of Ellen White's Steps to Christ that I edited. Supporting this podcast as a patron is the only way to get these things. Plus, there will be exclusive episodes on all sorts of topics. Topics that we just can't cover as we tell the story that we're telling. So please, please consider checking out patreon.com slash Adventist History Podcast today and partnering with us. We have so many cool things coming, like special episodes, and I'll include a link to the Patreon page in the show notes. So thank you in advance. When we get enough patrons, by the way, we will also drop our advertising but for now, here's your friendly reminder that this episode of Avenus History Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music, reviews, videos, and more. So to check them out, go to thehaystack.org. The Haystack. Life, culture, theology, and algae. One of those I may have added. I know I like poking fun at the haystack, just to see if they're listening, but in all seriousness, if you've enjoyed our Colorline episodes, 
you should check out their video series called The Wound. It is awesome. Okay, back to work, boys. I want to begin back at the 1909 General Conference session, where the controversy of the day was over the daily. Ellen White didn't get involved with that. Ellen White's message there was about health. Ellen White had just published her most famous book on health, The Ministry of Healing. Some Adventists are groaning right now because this book was used to destroy your childhood meals. No cheese, no black pepper, just eat your food. But this book was really about so much more than taking away your string cheese as a kid. It is a vision of wholeness. There's this line in the opening paragraph where Ellen White writes, It was Jesus' quote, mission to bring to men complete restoration. He came to give them health and peace and perfection of character. End quote. So a lot of people get this idea that Adventists have this legalistic relationship to vegetarianism. Maybe some do, but Adventists as a whole see being healthy as a part of Jesus' mission in our lives. He wants us to thrive for you to be your best you. It honors our Creator when we take care of ourselves physically, mentally, spiritually. That is the idea. Now, being a vegetarian isn't the goal. Being healthy is the goal. Please keep repeating that if you're an Adventist until that sinks in. Yes, Ellen White writes about unhealthiness of eating meat, but she also warns about eating too much sugar and the danger of overeating. So, happy Thanksgiving, folks! But lest you're tempted to just steam some veggies for every meal and without any salt, Ellen White writes that food should be enjoyable. And if it's not enjoyable, then it won't be as nourishing. So, so being healthy is the goal. And in some places that may mean eating meat, but the ideal is a healthy vegetarianism. Ellen White noticed a lot of Adventists in that time weren't aiming for the ideal. They were settling. And one of the people Ellen White thought was settling was General Conference President Arthur G. Daniels. So, in 1908, she wrote him a letter, a, a pretty bold letter. In it, she explained how food affects character. If you don't know how to say no to food, for instance, how will you say no to temptation? Everything is connected, mind, body, and spirit. But she also said something explosive. Quote, God demands self-denial be practiced in regard to those things which are not good. This is a work that will have to be done before his people can stand before him a perfected people. End quote. Oof. And then she went on. Quote, Who among our brethren will sign a pledge to dispense with flesh meats, tea, and coffee, and all injurious foods, and become health reformers in the fullest sense of the term? End quote. Now, Ellen White knew who she was writing this to, okay? Daniels ate meat, and now she wanted him to set an example for the rest of the church. You are the president, after all. Well, okay, Daniels called himself a vegetarian, though he ate chicken and fish. Anyways, Daniels sat on this letter for a few months. I mean, not literally, that would be weird. 
I just mean he didn't know what to do with this letter. You see, Daniel's remembered a time when an Adventist thought everyone needed to give up tea and coffee and meat and started a temperance pledge. A temperance pledge, by the way, was a common thing in America in those days. A family or church, for instance, would all sign this covenant together not to eat certain foods. I put some examples of temperance pledges on our Facebook page, so if you want to go look at it, just scroll down a little bit and I'm sure you'll see it. Anyways, this well-meaning saint, this, this Adventist who wanted everyone to sign a temperance pledge to give up these things, this well-meaning saint started this temperance pledge and it just, it just stirred up a hornet's nest among the church members. So Daniels, remembering this, writes Willie White about this and adds, quote, There are some who were fanatical and they could not be happy in the Lord while others did not see it to be their duty to go so far, end quote. Daniels is warning, Willie, a temperance pledge will be used against us, okay? Daniels was an administrator. He he looked at the problem as an administrator. His job was to help keep the peace, and he knew that such a pledge would deputize every health not in the church to wreak havoc on others. Only a few weeks ago, Daniels told Willie, quote, I was present at a workers' meeting where one of the ministers took a screaming position on the wickedness of eating flesh, end quote. Daniels wanted to see Adventists educated before anyone forced a temperance pledge on the people. This needed to be thought through and carefully planned before anything was done. And that's the message that Daniels delivered to Ellen White in person a few weeks later. The greatest need was for Adventists to be taught good health practices. They were ignorant, not defiant, Daniels would argue. And he calls this this temperance pledge, he calls it the anti-meat pledge, and says it would do more harm than good. Ellen White saw his point. And at the 1909 General Conference session, she took a different approach. She told the delegates there what she had told Daniels the previous year, but she didn't include any call for an anti-meat pledge. She told the delegates that, quote, God requires continual advancement, end quote, and warned against those, quote, who accept certain portions of the testimonies as the message of God while they reject those portions that condemn their favorite indulgences, end quote. Well, that still hits hard. And no doubt, some health nuts were ready to weaponize her words against their friends. The prophet said we shouldn't eat meat, so anyone who eats meat should go. Maybe that's why Ellen White said what she said next. Quote, we are not to make the use of flesh meat a test of fellowship. End quote. That is, if a Seventh-day Adventist eats meat, we are not to kick them out or discipline them or whatever for that. Nevertheless, she is encouraging people to keep advancing in their knowledge of good health practices and exercise and things like that. Okay, now Ellen White had shouldered the burden of this health message for about 50 years now. And from time to time, that burden would grow heavier and she would need to share that burden with the church. But she never completely laid it down. She would share the next burden she felt. In this case, the next burden she was going to feel that she needed to share with the church was to do more to reach the cities, and we've already covered that. 
So with that said, it's a mistake, however, to think that Ellen White just harped on health reform at the 1909 General Conference session. Health reform wasn't the only thing on her mind at that meeting. For Ellen White, the 1909 General Conference session was a deeply personal conference for her because she believed it would be her last. So Ellen White used most of her time there to speak of Jesus. Quote, For whom was all this agony and shame endured? It was for those who claimed to be the leaders of the church. End quote. That's what Ellen White reminded them. And she went on to talk about the cup of suffering that Jesus had begged the Father to take away from him. She goes on, quote, I realized that he might have refused to drink it and left the world to perish in its sin. I pledged that every energy of my life should be devoted to Christ. End quote. And that's when she started talking crazy, maybe crazy to you or I, because she started talking about going back on the front lines of ministry like she did when she was younger. Was it crazy? Was it faith? She told the delegates that back in the day, quote, I saw the power of God revealed in a remarkable manner. I have seen the room in which we were gathered filled with the glory of God, and when they were able to speak, the glory of God shone in their faces and the praise of God was upon their lips, end quote. Ellen White, like many of the old timers in 1909, was reminiscing. These early 20th century general conference sessions were full of reminiscing. We talked about that a bit the last time. The pioneers were getting old and the progress that had been made in their lifetimes was amazing. The contrast between when they started and where they were at now was astounding. I often tell people that Ellen White's lifespan witnessed the greatest range of change in human history. When she was a kid, the president of the United States was John Quincy Adams, the son of the second president of the United States, okay? And when she died, Woodrow Wilson was president, and it was the middle of World War I. She went from a horse and carriage when she, in her youth to automobiles and airplanes. I can't even begin to explain how drastically the world has changed over the 80-plus years of her life. By the way, something I find hilarious is how much Ellen White enjoyed riding in automobiles, in cars. Someone lent her a car in San Diego this one time. So she wrote a friend, quote, I enjoy very much riding in the automobile. I had thought of riding 40 miles next week to hold meetings in Escondido, but Willie urges me to return home, end quote. Basically, Ellen White is excited about having a car, and she's thinking of all the places she can now go. And her son, Willie, is like, Mom, come home. Don't stay out too late. Oh, Willie, such a mama's boy. Anyway, with, with this world changing so much during your life, it's natural to look back. This was not a small movement anymore. But what Ellen White wanted back in her church was that experience of early Adventists when they had to rely upon God for everything. When you couldn't just take a problem and give it to a committee to chew. You couldn't just turn in your expense reports and fill out this paperwork. I mean, you needed God or you weren't going anywhere. And of course, the, the big reason for all this reflecting, as I said, was that everybody's getting older. 
By 1909, Ellen White was keenly aware of her own mortality. She didn't think she'd make it much longer, so her closing words at the 1909 General Conference were, were really her valediction, a summary of her life's message, and we're going to get to those closing words a little bit later. The session had been in Washington, D.C., and when it was over, she headed up to Portland, Maine, where she had grown up. Ellen hadn't been there in 25 years, and she stayed with Clarence Bangs, her Baptist nephew whom she hadn't met before. That must have been really weird. Okay, I can just imagine Clarence's wife. Uh, so your 80-year-old aunt that you've never met before is coming to stay with us for a while? Who does she think she is? Uh, oh, uh, uh, she's a she's a prophet? Oh, this is going to be fun. Everybody's got a crazy aunt. Anyways, no, they seem to have gotten along quite quite well. And Ellen White spoke highly of her nephew and his wife. Though I should add that it's easy to speak highly of your relatives when you only see them every 25 years. <clears throat> Anyways, lest you think she's too negligent with her family, I'll tell you that in 1903, six years before, she had written to an Adventist preacher who was going to Portland and asked him to check in on Clarence and his family to make sure that they were okay. Anyways, as Ellen toured the city, she pointed out things she remembered from her childhood. She saw the Methodist church where she was baptized. It was in the courthouse that she and James had been married. She remembered first hearing William Miller and Joshua V. Himes preach that Jesus was going to come soon. She came to speak at a camp meeting in the area, of course. City officials came to hear Portland's famous daughter, and she did not disappoint. She spoke for over an hour, later writing, quote, I did not stand before them because I felt able. I stood there because of the opportunity to let them hear the message of mercy that is being given around the world. The message of mercy that is being given to the world, end quote. That pretty much summarizes the Adventist spirit. Ellen told the people of Portland that, quote, a work is to be carried forward here in Portland as the proclamation of the Lord's coming was carried forward in 1843 and 1844, end quote. With her love for her city rekindled, she was distressed to see that the Adventist congregation there was dying out. The missionary attention of the denomination had long since left New England. She made passionate appeals for Adventists across America to send money to Portland to build the church. Quote, The city has been especially noticed by the God of Israel. The city of Portland was remarkably blessed by God in the early days of the message. End quote. Then Ellen jumped on a train. Well, I mean, not jumped, of course. Anyway, she, she headed west. She got on a train and headed west across the Mississippi River. And her talks at Union College in Nebraska and in Colorado, where she met a young man named HMS Richards, you can hear the fading heartbeat of a woman who knows her time is short. What we need, she said, is a deep individual heart and soul experience. We need to pray more. We need the Holy Spirit to lead us. She had the burden of the old to know that your time is short, to have a harder time concentrating and yet still have so much to say, 
to have so little of your former energy and yet feel like there's still so much to do. Ellen White survived 1909, of course, and 1910, and 1911. And while the church was increasingly caught up in the Great War and various controversies, Ellen White mostly confined herself to California. She took trips down to Los Angeles and back, checking in on Loma Linda, but that was as far as she cared to go. The girl who had been born in America when every American lived east of the Mississippi River would never cross that river alive again after the 1909 General Conference session. She would die in California, the final frontier of American settlers who had steadily moved their way westward across the course of her life. Just as it was their final frontier, it was hers as well. So what did she do in her final few years? The answer is, she wrote. She wrote and she wrote and she wrote. There was a distinct awareness in her household that they needed to take advantage of her decent health as long as it should last and write as much as they could. There were so many projects they wanted to work on and they wanted her help as much as possible in, in accomplishing as many of those as they could. So she published books during that time, like Counsels to Parents, Teachers, and Students. She revised her autobiography, Life Sketches, and the book Gospel Workers that was re-released. She wrote Prophets and Kings, all but two chapters, which had to be finished after her death. She released Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, the Acts of the Apostles, and of course, she gave those major updates to the Great Controversy released in 1911. All of this work just reminds you of that line from the play Hamilton, where Aaron Burr asks Hamilton, why do you write like you're running out of time? The answer, of course, was that she was running out of time. She knew it, she accepted it, and she realized that her written words would outlive her. So she could turn down invitations to go there and turn down invitations to speak over here. Writing was going to be her legacy. Now, when Adventists gathered at camp meetings or general conference sessions during this time, they would often ask, how is Sister White doing? What's the latest? Everybody wanted to know what she was doing. Well, Willie answered this question in a letter to his brother in 1912. Willie wrote, quote, Mother's health is quite changeable. Instead of writing several letters a day, as in the olden times, mother writes only two or three a month nowadays. End quote. On June 15th of that year, Willie skipped church to stay behind with his mom and talk. Ellen told Willie that she wanted to visit Portland, Maine one final time. But Willie talked her down. Mom, finish your books. That is what is most important. Loma Linda proved to be the institution closest to her heart in her final years. She told Willie, quote, The Loma Linda institution, if conducted according to the will of God, will become the most important in its work of all our institutions throughout the world. End quote. The Western Health Reform Institute, or Battle Creek Sanitarium, as it was later known, was her and James's institutional baby. 
Kellogg, her adopted son of sorts, had kidnapped it and ruined it. Cain had killed Abel, so she placed her hope in Loma Linda, her Seth, if you will. God has granted me another child. When the 1913 General Conference session rolled around, Willie White came with a word from his mother. Quote, Tell our brethren to be of good cheer. Tell them to have faith in God and to expect great things, to undertake great things, and in his strength to go forward. Tell them not to fear or to look back. My prayers will be with them. End quote. Willie then moved to answer the question everybody was thinking, of course. Willie said, quote, I thought it proper to bring you this word of greeting and to answer the question which a thousand will ask me, how is Sister White's health? Mother is 85 years old. Mother's courage is good. She has no fear of the future. She expects to rest in the grave a little while before the Lord comes, but she has no dread, end quote. We're told that after this report and after this update, Quote, tears flowed freely as Sister White's expressions of confidence in her brethren and in God's leadership of his people were read. End quote. On Thanksgiving Day, 1914, Ellen White celebrated her 87th birthday. There wasn't much celebration, as Ellen White didn't like a fuss, but it was the occasion of one of my favorite Ellen White jokes of all time. She had received a rather snug knitted vest to help keep her warm. It was sent by a friend in Japan, and the white tried it on. But it was pretty tight on her, and so she wrote the gift giver back, thanked her for the gift, telling her, quote, that there is a great deal more to Sister White than some people thought, end quote. Clever girl, Ellen. Clever as 1915 dawned, urgent letters were reaching her, desperately asking her for her insight on what to do about the World War. Should Adventists fight? What do we do with the draft? Ellen White said very little of the war, though she was very much aware of it. Her assistants tried from time to time to get her to consider the problem, but she seemed rather aloof about it. One day, probably after reading the review, I would imagine... Ellen White turned to Willie. She asked, Are our people affected by the war? Yes, said Willie. Hundreds have been pressed into the army. Some have been killed and others are in perilous places. There is great suffering and much perplexity. Some in America and in Europe feel that those of our brethren who have been forced into the army have done wrong to submit to military service. They think it would have been better for them to have refused to bear arms, even if they knew that as a result, they would be made to stand up in line to be shot. Ellen replied, quote, I do not think they ought to do that. I think they ought to stand to their duty as long as time lasts. End quote. It wasn't the most mm, helpful advice she's ever given. Nor was she that helpful with the daily controversy, if you will recall from that episode. Now, around Elmshaven, she was in good spirits, but her capacity to understand the complexity of these situations was obvious, and Willie didn't bother burdening her with them. It was time for the church to seek God and his wisdom on their own. The last letter... 
Ellen White wrote was to a woman who was wavering in her faith. She needed some support. She needed some help. And so Ellen wrote, quote, Satan seeks to draw our minds away from the mighty helper, to lead us to ponder over our degradation of soul. Though Jesus sees the guilt of the past, he speaks pardon. And we should not dishonor him by doubting his love. The feeling of guiltiness must be laid at the foot of the cross, or it will poison the springs of life. Christ's love for his children is as tender as it is strong, and it is stronger than death, for he died to purchase our salvation and to make us one with him, mystically and eternally one. So strong is his love that it controls all his powers and employs the vast resources of heaven in doing his people good. End quote. And I'll tell you why I love that letter. Because I think you can read this letter as Ellen White addressing her younger self. Back when she was sick and weak and frail and doubted God's love for her. And so now it's like Ellen White has just come full circle in life. She's the voice her younger self needed to hear. On March 2nd, 1915, she had her last vision. Her last vision was for the young people of the church. She summarized her message this way, quote, In the night season I was selecting and laying aside books that are of no advantage to the young. We should select for them books that will encourage them to sincerity of life and lead them to the opening of the word. I do not expect to live long. My work is nearly done. Tell our young people that I want my words to encourage them in that manner of life that will be most attractive to the heavenly intelligences and that their influence upon others may be most ennobling. End quote. As her health declined, Ellen White began receiving visitors who knew that they were coming to say goodbye. It was also the last chance you had to ask a prophet something you always wanted to know. So one man asked Ellen White if she had any insight into when Jesus would come. She said, of course, that she didn't know. The man then said he was worried about what would happen to the church in her absence, and he wasn't the only one. She replied very simply, The Lord is perfectly able to take care of his cause. She was asked that question a number of times, and, and sometimes she would point to her writings on the shelf and say, Here are my writings. When I am gone, they will testify for me. As for the books she was in the process of writing, she said that they would be available to help the church for the rest of the journey. Her words. The manager of the Pacific Press came by and told Ellen that her friends at the press were praying for her. As the manager said goodbye, she called after him, quote, I hope to meet you in the kingdom of God, End quote. On February 13th, 1915, Ellen White fell and broke her hip. There was little anyone could do for her. She just had to grin and bear it. Her assistant, Sarah, had to make sure that Ellen White ate which was sometimes hard because she didn't feel like eating. Well, there's this one time where Sarah was trying to convince Ellen to take another bite, and Ellen quipped, 
Well, Sarah, I would not want to die before my time by overeating. Soon, George Starr and his wife arrived at Elmshaven. The Starrs had been friends of Ella White for 50 years, and they had served together in Australia. You left me in Australia, George Starr told Ellen. Ellen laughed. The Starrs were amazed at how cheerful Ellen seemed, and their conversation went a little bit like this. Ellen said, I am glad that you find me thus. I have not had many mournful days. Starr replied, No, not in all your life. Ellen, No, the Lord has arranged and led in all these things for me, and I am trusting in him. He knows when it will all end. Starr, Yes, it will soon end, and we shall meet you in the kingdom of God, and we will talk it all over there again. And we will talk it all over there together, as you wrote us in one of your last letters. Ellen, Oh yes, it seems almost too good to be true, but it is true. A few weeks later, on July 9th, she whispered to Willie her final recorded words, I know in whom I have believed. A week later, family and friends gathered in her room. Her breathing began slowing. In the morning, she took about 50 breaths per minute. By 3 p.m., it was 38. 20 minutes later, her breathing slowed to 18 breaths per minute. A few minutes after that, 10. At 3.40 p.m. on Friday, July 16th, 1915, Ellen White breathed her last. Willie described it, quote, like the burning out of a candle, so quiet, end quote. A funeral was held at Elmshaven two days later. 300 chairs were set up. Loughborough was there, and Star, too. It was the first of three funeral services. The second funeral soon followed. Adventists had gathered nearby for a camp meeting, and so her body was taken there. That may seem a little odd to you, but the believers there had a good reason. They said, quote, if Sister White were alive and well, she would be right here at this meeting. Why not let her be brought here and someone tell us how she lived it? End quote. Fair enough. This gave many in the West a chance to say goodbye before the body was put on a train to head east for the third and final funeral, Battle Creek. Ellen White wanted to be buried next to her husband and her two sons who had preceded her in death what seems like a thousand years ago. What a journey it has been. What a story. In Battle Creek, the viewing itself drew some 2,000 people. Ministers took turns standing guard near her casket as visitors paid their respects. One of those ministers was M.L. Andreasen, whom we'll talk about some other time. There's even a story that D.M. Canwright was there. The old preacher-turned-adversary was in the process of writing a book against Ellen White, but he nevertheless felt he had to attend. He, too, paid his respects to her casket, and then he went to the back of the line and waited to pay those respects again. This time, when he got to the front, he wept, supposedly saying, 
There is a noble Christian woman gone. If 2,000 people attended the viewing, two or perhaps three times as many attended her final funeral service. Daniels and Stephen Haskell, divided over the daily issue but united in her death, performed the service. The sanctuary of the Battle Creek Church was decorated simply and meaningfully. There was a white cross made out of roses and even another floral arrangement of an open Bible with the words, Behold, I come quickly, spelled out on the pages. As Daniels, Haskell, and others remembered Ellen White, Willie White's mind drifted. He remembered his father's funeral nearly 35 years ago and how much everything has changed since then. So many had thought back then that with James's death, Ellen White would be soon to follow and there was anxiety over the future of the church. But in hindsight, things kept moving and people were again wondering, what does it mean now? What's next? What is the church going to look like without Ellen White? After the funeral, every automobile and horse carriage in Battle Creek was used to get people to the cemetery. She was buried next to her family, of course. Near them was J.P. Kellogg, John Harvey Kellogg's father, who was one of the earliest supporters of the movement in Michigan. There was David Hewitt, who was buried nearby as well. Hewitt was called the most honest man in town, and Joseph Bates sought him out as the first Avenist convert in Battle Creek. John Byington, the first General Conference president, was there too. And, of course, Uriah Smith. Ellen White would be buried among friends. Newspapers across the country paid attention, from the New York Times to the San Francisco Chronicle. One reporter cornered poor Willie and peppered him with questions about who was going to be Ellen's successor as the church's prophet. Willie told them that it didn't work like that. Perhaps his unspoken point was, we are not Mormon. If God chooses a prophet, it's up to him. But this was more than an idle question, because church leaders anticipated that some would try to fill Ellen White's shoes. There was a spiritual leadership vacuum. F.M. Wilcox, editor of The Review, prudently wrote a series of articles reiterating what Willie told the reporter. Sure enough, a number of people claimed to be the next Ellen White shortly after her death. They would have to be judged on their own merits. Ellen White passed her mantle to no one. Back at Elmshaven, Ellen White's assistants were leaving, finding other jobs now that they no longer had to help her write or cook for her. Willie found himself alone in a great big old house that once had been buzzing with activity. Everything was in perfect order, Willie said, quote, but the life of the place had gone. The dear mother whose presence had made this room the most precious place in all the world to me was not there. Then I recalled the many times I had returned from the eastern states and had hastened up to mother's room sure of a hearty welcome, and an eager listener to my reports of the meetings attended and of the progress of the work in which she was so deeply interested. But now there was no one in the writing chair to listen to my report. End quote. 
Ellen White had said that after her death, her writings would speak for her. Fine, fine. But how do we interpret them? How do they get us through the First World War? How will we get through the next crisis? And it's not just about needing Ellen White to solve our problem. It's, I don't know, it's like losing your mom. Even though guys in suits were making the decisions in Washington, you just, as an Adventist back then, you just felt safe knowing that Ellen White was somewhere out there watching over things. That if we just made a bad decision, she'd call us out on it and correct us and get us back on the path. But now, guys, mom's gone. What do we do now? Ellen White had a largely thankless ministry. It was, in some ways, a very lonely life. She challenged people to change, which is um, seldom welcomed. And the church always had another assignment for her, another invitation for her, another question for her. They, they needed something else from her. And the church did very little for her during her life. It's not like she got rich. It's not like they gave her a nice corner office somewhere. Few people knew how to thank her. So, let me try. Ellen, I guess this is goodbye. I remember when your husband James died, people came up to you and said how much they wished James were still alive, that maybe God could work a miracle and raise him again. And I remember you told them not to wish for that. James worked hard. James sacrificed for Jesus. And you told them to let the tired warrior rest. That seems like good advice. I admit that there's times where we wish you could come back and help us sort out a few things. But we're content to let the tired warrior rest. So, Ellen... Thanks for everything you've done for us, really. You gave everything you had to build this movement so we could make fun of veggie hot dogs and whine about stupid things. I hope we can make you proud by the end. Sleep well, and we'll see you soon. What do we do now? Back at the 1909 General Conference session, the one we talked about at the beginning of this episode, Ellen White spoke her last words to the leaders of the church. After she was done, she picked up a Bible, and with her trembling hands, she held it out to the delegates. She said, Brethren and sisters, I commend unto you this book. Then she closed the Bible and walked away. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. 
Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.